But every year, uh, the staff, at least up until COVID, uh, had the opportunity to go on a retreat and uh, be with other faculty members. And then also we have a, a retreat where our coordinators of our extension schools come and give reports. And I remember the first year that I attended that. Of course, it was very encouraging to be a part of that. But that's where I really felt like I got to know uh, Donnie and Noma. And uh, we sat around, you know, for breakfast uh, each morning or uh, lunchtime and uh, those tables and um, found out that Donnie has such a, a wide variety of experiences and wisdom that just exudes from him. And I uh, had just a, a real joy in being able to hear a lot of your stories, everything from driving a school bus uh, for a number of years, I guess, while you were preaching and doing things to doing mission work. He and Noma went to Chile. I don't know where Jessica was at that point, if you, were, you weren't there. <laughs> but uh, they are a, a wonderful couple and have a wonderful daughter, and we certainly appreciate all the good work they do. He's a graduate, of course. I sure that most of you know him, but he's a graduate of the school here and also the uh, dean of the graduate program and teaches a variety of courses here. Um, and we're just so blessed to have you, Donnie, as in all that you do in the kingdom and the good work and your excellent teaching. And today his topic is on God's power in the creation. So, Donnie, come speak to us. Thank you, John, for uh, that introduction. The um, uh, broad range of experiences may come from a, a, a lack of ability to hold down a job. I don't know. Um, the wisdom may come from all the mistakes that I've made. Uh, we, we should be learning from our mistakes, certainly. But uh, it is good to be here. I'm glad that you are here uh, this uh, this morning for our lesson, God's Power in Creation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 24, the New American Standard Bible says, For indeed Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Of course, as you know, the, the theme of this lectureship is grasping the power of God, and the text that's being covered is the second half of the book of 1 Corinthians. And that might raise a question in some people's minds about what a lesson from Genesis has to do with this theme. And the answer to that question is that the power of God is critical to everything about us, about the church, about Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 24, Jesus is called the power of God. In Romans 1 and verse 16, the gospel is called the power of God. We just cannot get away from, and no faithful Christian would ever want to get away from, the power of God. Still uh, remaining in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Our very faith is to be based on the power of God. And so for that reason, to help us make sure that our faith is not based on the wisdom of men, men who think that the uh, creation or the beginning of everything, special creation by the power of God, is foolishness, 
Rather, we want our faith to rest on that power of God. We approach this lesson this morning. The creation of the universe, as it is described in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and that's where we're going to to, uh, base ourselves in our study this morning, is really, I argue, one of the most important parts of Scripture, since it introduces us to God himself. And I'm going to talk a little bit later more about the context of Genesis 1 and 2. And I don't mean the biblical context as much as I mean the context of everything and what that means to us. The reader of the scriptural account of the beginning of literally everything cannot help but be impressed with the power of God demonstrated in the creation, God's power in creation. Genesis is very much a book of beginnings. In fact, the English title of the book, Genesis, comes from the Greek title of the book, Genesis. (laughs) The only difference is how we pronounce the G. And that word means beginning. We use that in English. Aside from the title of a book, the first book of our Bibles, uh, we use the word Genesis to mean the beginning in everything that we do. The Hebrew title of the book is the first word of the book in that Hebrew, Breshit, and that word means in the beginning. And even in our English Bibles, everybody in the room probably knows Genesis 1 and verse 1. How does it begin? In the beginning, Breshit. That's the name of it. So clearly the book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. Or origins, we could say it that way. I want you to get this point in this lesson. Genesis is the true historical account of the creation of the world and, for purposes of this lesson, demonstrates very capably the power of God. I don't say that. I don't, I don't teach this lesson. I don't argue anywhere, anytime that special creation by God as recorded in Genesis is a, is a good alternative to evolution. No, I say clearly, I affirm strongly, it is the only true account of the beginning of literally everything in this universe. I want to start by making the point that God created or God made by his power a place for man. God made a place for man. And then we're going to move to where God is going to make man. God created man. And then we're going to see God's power demonstrated in our, in our last point in that God created marriage. And we'll look at the power of God in that. This first point, God's power made a place for man, covers Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 25, and we don't really have time to go verse by verse. You you folks that, uh, you that have been in my uh, class on Genesis know that we take a lot longer than we've got today to cover these 25 verses, and those of you who will be uh, studying that with me in, a, in two or three weeks, uh, you need to know that now. Uh, so we're going to cover this a little more briefly than we will in, in class. But the very verse, first verse of this text makes the basic claim that God created the heavens and the earth. That's just how, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And no attempt is made in that verse, or indeed anywhere else in Scripture, to prove the existence of God. I don't know if you ever thought about that. 
But the Bible never sets out to prove the existence of God. It merely acknowledges his existence and what he did. Now, the Apostle Paul would say many centuries later in Romans chapter 1 that evidence of his existence is all around us. Just look. And he also says that 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 evidence involves his eternal power. And we should grasp that power. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. It's also true that no mention in Genesis 1 and verse 1 is made of just how God created the heavens and the earth. It just says he created them. Now, given how his power is demonstrated and described in those verses immediately after that, and what he did on each day where he spoke and things came into being, we would presume to say that he created the heavens and the earth just that way. That he spoke and things came into into being. Can you even begin to get your mind wrapped around that kind of power? That God speaks and something happens. Okay, that's one level. God speaks and something happens. We can kind of see that power demonstrated in the world around us. <clears throat> Someone who has enough authority and, and surrounded by people who respect that authority can speak and something happens. But how many people do you know can speak and have nothing become something? I don't know anybody like that except God. As God began to add detail to his new creation, <clears throat> we need to remember a little bit about, again, here, the context, the overall context uh, of what is happening uh, that would help us to understand that Moses is the one, was the one, tasked with writing the history, the, the creation account, at a specific time for a specific audience. That specific audience was the was made up of the Israelites who had come out of captivity, and even more specifically, their children. Because by the time, now Moses is writing this during that 40 uh, years of uh, wilderness wandering, after, immediately after the Exodus. And just exactly when he began to write that and, uh, and so on, and where Genesis falls into those five books, I don't know. Uh, he's finishing it just before his death and just before they enter into the into the land of promise. So there's maybe some overlap in when he's writing Genesis and the the um, lives of those who are going to die in the wilderness. But that is the audience that he's writing uh, this. And bearing in mind the complete story of the exodus of God's people from from Egypt and their journey into the promised land, we ought to note that he wrote this for a specific reason. The purpose of the writing of what the Jews called the Torah, what we call the Pentateuch, was to prepare the children of Israel, to prepare the people of God to go into... We've, I have always, literally my entire life, uh, heard that described as the promised land. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Doesn't that sound beautiful? The descriptions that the spies brought back, the land flowing with milk and honey, it's, it's so beautiful. It was an exceedingly wicked land, full of exceedingly wicked people. You know the story from Genesis 19 uh, uh, about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, that was Sodom and Gomorrah. That's not to say they were the only people that were like that in that region. Everybody in that region was like that. 
And we're going to see some of that influence affect the Israelites themselves when we get over into Judges uh, chapters 19 and 20 and along in there. So it's an exceedingly wicked land, and God knew what exposure to that culture would be like for his people, and so he prepared them. They've been in captivity for centuries, for generations. They need to know who they are. They need to know whose they are. They need to know what he expected of them. And they needed, if you will, an inoculation before they went into that land, a vaccine. And the Pentateuch serves as that. And so keeping this in mind, the details of what was created on each of the days of the creation week should be understood in light of this preparation by God of a place for the crowning part of his creation, mankind. All through that process, God made something and scripture says he saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. And the power of God is evidenced in each case by the words, and God said, let there be. And there was. God in his wisdom created every living thing up to that point, plant or animal. Now I'm just talking about life. I'm not talking about uh, inanimate. Inanimate means without life. I'm not talking about inanimate objects in this point, but every living thing that God had created up to this point, he had created with the ability to procreate, the ability to be fruitful and multiply, or to follow the command to be fruitful and multiply. He used that term in chapter 1, verse 11, and also in verse 22 and others. Life was intended to continue perpetually, Filling the earth, each one after its kind, seems to be the purpose of life at this point in creation. And so in Genesis 1, verses 1 through 25, God has successfully created a place. Remember, all along, all along the way, at every step, God had seen that his creation was good, and he's created this, this place for his, the pinnacle of his creation, mankind. Now, I want you to stop and think about that for a moment. We're talking about the power of God. But let's slip in a little uh, uh, station identification here, a little plug for the love of God. All of this world, all of this universe, he created for you and for me. Isn't that wonderful? His power is what did it. His love is what made him do it. Everything that man was need would need is here, was here, and waiting for it. And so the next example of the power of God was the creation of man himself. We find that in verses 26 through 31 of the text. In verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them, man, Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Again, that's verse 26. And right away, we see that we learn that man is created in the image of God. And this very verse, in this very verse, God said that mankind would rule, would have dominion, some versions say. 
over the rest of the physical creation. Now, part of that, of the meaning of that word rule is the notion of caring for, taking care of. In other words, mankind was never meant to rule over the world, over the earth, over creation with an iron fist recklessly using any part of creation for his own interests and purposes without regard for the care and preservation of that part of creation or any other part. Not to venture into the political, but when man treats the world around us without regard for its preservation, that's not good rule. That's not having the kind of dominion God wanted. It's not good stewardship of the gift that God gave us. He made this for us. Did your parents ever give something to you, make something for you, and expect you to take care of it? Yeah, mine did. That was expected. Well, God made this for us. He expects us to take care of it and have good stewardship in that care. You know, something that may be missed when one reads through the, the text of the first two chapters of Genesis is that what is written here is not written, is not intended to be taken in uh, or understood to be written in chronological order. Chapter 1 is followed by chapter 2 uh, in the, the composition of the book, but they don't happen chronologically in order that way. In other words, what happened in chapter 2 did not happen completely after what happened in chapter 1. Um, what Really what I'm getting at here is that the creation of Adam in um, Genesis 2 and verse 7 is not a different creation of mankind in chapter 1 and verse 26. In fact, the text of Genesis 2 verses 7 through 25 is exactly the same event that is described in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1. It just provides greater detail. And I say that because I have I've spoken to people, even in my own family, who believe that's two separate creations. That God had one creation. I don't really remember now if the understanding was God created, uh, created all that he created in, in chapter 1. Well, that didn't work, so let's try it again in chapter 2. And that's not how that how that works. Uh, so uh, in our next section, we're going to explore some of those details. Uh, but for the rest of this section, there are some other important details that we need to to uh, explore. When God created man, He put him in the midst of a garden, a garden in Eden that God had created for him. Now we call that that first man Adam. Now, we use that as his name. In fact, we have people today who still use that name as a name. Uh, but really, it's the Hebrew word for man that's used in those verses. God called him man, or Adam. And uh, in, verse, um, uh, in chapter 2 and verse 15, he was put in that garden to cultivate it and to keep it. That was his purpose, had a job. And there was one specific command that he was given. Just one that he had to obey. Chapter 2 and verse 17. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Now, we all know the story of Adam and Eve. We know what is going to happen in chapter 3 with with their, their sin and, and this kind of thing. 
it always reminds me of, I think it first appeared in a, in a meme and on social media, but a lot of people use it now. You had one job. <laughs> you had one job. Well, Adam had one job, and he seems to have done the one job, but he had one commandment to follow. And he didn't do a good job there. And I appreciate Brother Dave Miller's uh, a lesson yesterday where he, where he pointed out Scripture draws attention to Eve. First Timothy chapter 2 draws attention to Eve being deceived. But Adam was right there. And if we understand that to mean that Eve was deceived, Adam wasn't deceived, that's not letting Adam off the hook, is it? That's putting greater responsibility for the failure on him. He should have spoken up. He should have stepped up and fulfilled his responsibility. And so Adam, at this point in creation, he's been created, now he's been put into this garden. He has a perfect, or the biblical term at this point is good, creation for him in which to live. But he lacked one very important thing. He had a job, he had a law to live by, but he lacked one very important thing. Now, as I said a moment ago, every part of living creation was created to be fruitful and multiply. Adam had no way to do that. And remember, um, that command for Adam comes in verse 28 after the events of chapter 2, verses 7 through 25. And God recognized for the first time that something in creation was not good. The very first time. Remember what we said, Genesis, the book of origins. The very first thing that was not good was that man was alone. And God's solution to the problem of the thing that was not good was to create, the New American Standard says, a helper. A helper suitable. The King James Version says, a help meet. Not help meet. Help meet. There's two words there. And we're going to come back to that verse in our next section and explore that a little, a little further. But uh, here I want to address that initial part of God solving the problem. The first step was to have Adam name all of the animals. Please don't understand or get the idea that God was casting about for a solution. Uh-oh, here we, now we've got a problem. Genesis, first problem. You know, I didn't think about this. We're going to have to find Adam a companion. And so he has him, uh, parades all the animals by Adam and lets Adam name the animals so that we can find a companion. And, uh, well, none of that didn't work. We're going to have to come up with plan B. That is not what is happening here. God knew all along that there wasn't any member of the animal kingdom that was going to survive, suffice to answer this, uh, this problem. And by the way, just to point this out, the text is pretty clear that uh, uh, Adam was not in danger of being eaten by any of the potential companions that he was naming as they as they passed by. All of the animals were vegetarians, as well as Adam at this point. Uh, none of them uh, were, were eating meat, so that, that's not a concern. I, I know some of you may have been concerned about poor Adam about that. But... Uh, um, the problem is, remained, or the problem remained. Adam, man, was alone. Well, that brings us to God's power created marriage 
verses 4 through 25 of Genesis chapter 2. And, and most of us in this room, or if not all of us, are familiar with God's solution to the problem of man being alone. He created woman. Let's go back to chapter 2 and verse 18 and, dis- and discuss the, the role that she was to fulfill. There's been a lot of confusion over this term, help meet. And I say it that way because most people are familiar with the King James rendering of that term, although they do say it as one word, help meet. Um, not really understanding at all what that is referring to. Some have gone so far as to think that it means women are second-class citizens, not quite uh, to the level of men. Some oppose the Bible itself as being sexist uh, because of a misunderstanding of this word. Both of those examples are indeed misunderstandings. And so what does the term mean? And, and I want us, as I, I've said already, you got to start with understanding there are two words that are being uh, used here. Even in the, uh, there are two Hebrew words, but there are two words in the English that we use. The word that is translated helper in the New American Standard, translated help in the King James Version, is the Hebrew word ezer, E-Z-E-R, um, and it means basically help or aid. The word suitable in the New American Standard, it's a helper suitable. Uh, it's the word meet in the King James Version is neged. Again, a very short, simple word, N-E-G-E-D, neged, and it means a counterpart or a mate. Now, there are a lot of ways to describe this, and, and I, I don't really, uh, we don't really have time to do it, and I don't even want to go into all the different ways to try to explain what that means. Um, even though the definitions of the words would allow translations like helper, suitable, or, um, or suitable helper or assistant, the original words don't give us that uh, idea at all, that she is a helper, but not really number one. You know, she's sort of a, an assistant. She's a good assistant boy. But she's just not quite up to snuff for, you know, not on the same. That is not at all what that means. The best way that I have ever come up with to try to explain what that term means is she fills up everything that was lacking in him. God looked at him alone said, that's not good. When he looked at them together, he said, that's very good. She fills up in him everything that is lacking in every way. Not only are they now able, mankind now able to reproduce, able to be fruitful and multiply, but they become a social unit that I'll talk about in just a moment a little more, uh, a little, a little, uh, in a little more detail. They become a strong unit. There is power in marriage, folks. It's not, marriage is a blessing. There's no doubt about that. But it's more than that. There is power, the power of God in a marriage relationship. So she fills up everything that was lacking uh, in uh in her existence. And again, it's not an unfamiliar story how this happened. God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. Verse 21, God performed the first surgery, speaking of origins and uh, beginnings, took a rib from Adam, fashioned it into a woman. And the problem was solved that had been acknowledged. Man was no longer alone. And when God presented Adam with his new wife, and she's, we learn she's going to be called 
Eve, because she is the mother of all living, chapter 3 and verse 20, we should probably understand that more emotion was present than uh, we might just from the words of verse 23, especially if read by someone in a a monotonous voice. Um, You know, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. I really don't think that's the way he said that, do you? Um, We had a teacher here when I was a student, Bob Waldron, who taught um, Christian family, the Christian family class. And he said, I don't think those were Adam's first words at all. I think his first word was, wow. (laughs) Boy, this one is, this is another one of God's creatures, but this one doesn't look like all these other creatures I've been naming. This one looks like me, but not like me. So I'm I'm sure that he was probably right. There was a lot more emotion that was involved uh, there. Um, Dr. William Gresham believes that Adam used to play on words when he called his new wife woman uh, and himself man. He uses words that sound similar, and they sound as similar in Hebrew as they do in English. Man and woman. In Hebrew, man is ish. In, uh, and woman is Isha. Ish and Isha. Elsewhere in scripture, it's clear that the wife is to subject herself to her husband in Christ. Ephesians 5.22 and following and others. However, scripture is also clear from the beginning, from the meaning of the original words used in the creation of woman in marriage, just how this relationship was to function. Just as man was not to rule over creation with an iron fist, there was to be love and respect for the woman. That is God's design for marriage. And this one more point that we ought to glean from this particular text has to do with this term, one flesh. You know, in addressing the question of marriage and divorce in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 5, Jesus referred back to this verse. The Apostle Paul would later refer to it when pointing out the serious nature of the sin of joining oneself to a prostitute. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 16. What exactly is meant by the phrase one flesh in this context? Well, given what is said about man and woman leaving their parents and being joined together to become one flesh, it would seem that God intends... For a man and a woman to form form their own home, their own social unit and source of authority, separate from their parents. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this and found it interesting. I found it interesting. It proves the point that God is talking about marriage in general, not just talking about Adam and Eve, because he says man man and woman are supposed to leave their parents. That was a little easier for Adam and Eve than it was for us. They didn't have any. No, he's talking about all marriages are this way. And they come together to form that one social unit. That does not mean that when a couple get married, and usually couples get married at a younger age, and sometimes, you know, I know some people, my parents are this way. Uh, my, My father was never single. He went from his parents' house to his wife and their house. Uh, So young people get married, and sometimes right out of their parents' home. This does not mean that they never go to their parents for advice, 
that's like, nope, sorry, Dad, I'll figure this out myself. You know, I tried to figure some things out myself, and that was immediately followed by a phone call. Dad, <laughs> how do you do this? I'm in my 60s now. My father's in his 80s now. I still make that phone call from time to time. And now sometimes he makes that phone call the other direction. <laughs> but uh, that, it doesn't mean that. But for the source of authority, for the source of strength, for the source of power, the husband and the wife turn to God first and to each other second. They form that social unit. And of course, the, the, the one flesh, the idea of one flesh includes the idea of the physical sexual union. But it is so much more than that. It's a closer union than best friends outside of marriage. I may have my best friends, she may have her best friends, but none of those friends come between us. And when we allow those things to happen, that's when marriages begin to, to suffer. Because that's not God's design for marriage. Never was. It never was. That relationship between a husband and wife is stronger and more important. You know, a husband and wife may disagree, may even argue, even strongly. But when an attack comes from outside the marriage, that's when we close ranks. That's when we close ranks. You know, it used to bother me the idea, and I don't remember specifically, uh, Noma may, uh, I don't remember specifically this example actually happening this way, but it would, the, the very idea of it kind of bothered me that, that a husband and wife could be involved in the, in the middle of a, you know, we use the term knock down, drag out fight. And I don't mean a physical altercation, but I mean a, a, a real argument. And the phone rings. And she picks it up and says, hello. It's like five seconds before that, voices were raised. You know, there wasn't anything like this pleasant voice that just said hello. Like, so you can be nice to other people, but not me. That's what would bother me about it. But then as I, as I learned more about what God expected of a marriage, that's exactly how she should answer the phone. If the phone's on my side of the room, that's how I should answer the phone. Because our argument ain't nobody else's business. This is us. And as we present ourselves to the outside world in answering the phone or in any other way, we are a unit. We belong together. We take care of each other. I hate to use this illustration, but it, it, it seemed to fit in my mind. Nobody hits my brother but me. Nobody argues with my wife but me. Nobody treats her like I treat her. And nobody will ever, ever be allowed to. That's what God meant by one flesh. That's what he meant when he had Paul write, love her as you love yourself. That's what God intended, and his power is evident in the strong marriage relationship. And husbands and wives that love each other the way God intended for them to do cannot 
be separated by any attack this world can bring. Even something that may physically remove one that cannot be separated. They cannot be separated because of the power of God that is grasped in that relationship. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans that since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen. I mentioned that earlier, Romans 1 and verse 20. The power of God that is evident in the creation all around us is still evident. As evident as it ever was. As evident um, as it was since the creation of the world and in the time of Paul. It is evident today. The fact that God could just speak and something come from nothing describes a power that no human mind can ever comprehend. And along with that power is the wisdom of God in creating a place for mankind. creating man himself, creating life, creatures who could reproduce each one after its own kind so that life would perpetuate itself until God decides for that time to end. Being able to create mankind in his own image is another demonstration of that power. Mankind is able to think and to reason and decide between good and evil to obey and disobey, like God can. God can disobey. Jesus had the freedom to disobey. He never did. He showed us a better example. But that's the power of God in creating man to be able to do that. You know, we're very fond of ascribing human emotions and, and, and thought processes to the animal kingdom. But they're not like God. They're not like dog, uh, like God at all. God's power is great enough that he could have given his, this ability to any of his creatures. But remember, mankind, we are the goal that God was pointing at. We are the pinnacle of his creation. You know, in our world today, marriage is under attack. It's ridiculed as being outdated and archaic. We're told that love and marriage should be allowed between anyone and the chosen uh, between anyone and the chosen object of that person, whether that person uh, whether that the object of the of that love is of the same gender or even the same species. We should just live and let live. We're told that most marriages fail. We're told that love is fleeting. It's a fleeting thing and totally dependent upon emotions. We just fell out of love. However, God's power, through his written word, tells us that God created marriage to withstand every attack from outside. Marriages fail when one or both parties give up 
on the power of God available in marriage. However, if both parties remain faithful, faithful to God, faithful to each other, no force on earth can destroy that marriage. That is true power. And it comes from God. Thank you so much for your attention.